0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ and a heart for those who haven't heard it yet. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit into this place, and we pray that he would even open the eyes of our heart now, that we might behold uh, your life-changing work uh, in our own lives, but the work that you promised to do in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. I draw your attention this evening to the parable of the sower. Uh, Some of you who are in church this morning will be relieved I'm not preaching the same sermon on Romans uh, because I'm done with it. Uh, I've had enough of Romans chapter 8, and you can always go on the website and listen to that. And so let's look at the parable of the sower, a wonderful parable that Jesus gives us. And this is a time of dissension, because at this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, while he was speaking to the people, Jesus' mother and his brothers came asking for him, and he replied, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He didn't get a lot of Christmas gifts uh, the next uh, Christmas uh, by saying that, uh, but then he begins to teach in parables, and it goes on a real agricultural kick. He tells them the parable of the sower, uh, and then he tells the parable of the weeds, and then he tells the parable of the mustard seed. And in between uh, the parable of the sower, and his explaining the parable of the sower, he actually unpacks the reason why he preaches in parables. And I would draw that to your attention, and we're going to allude to it a little bit later on. But Jesus does something remarkable with this parable, and I am grateful for it. And that is, he explains it. He says, when I said this, this is what I meant. And he said, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. What is the word of the kingdom? Uh, I think that there is a tremendous amount of confusion, uh, certainly in the world, which makes sense, but even in the church, over what this is. What is the gospel message? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Some years ago, the White Horse Inn did a man-on-the-street interview at a large Christian convention, and this was packed out with people who would identify themselves as even conservative and evangelical Christians. And when they asked the people there, what is the gospel, Uh, they got all kinds of answers. Things like, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, love God with all that you have. The summary of the law, basically, which we had there, but uh, is that really good news? It's it's helpful hints for living. It's good advice if you want to keep your neighborly relations well. Uh, but ultimately, is that good news? Well, of course not, because our response to God's law is what? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And so the word of the kingdom is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that God in His infinite mercy has sent a Messiah into the world to save His people and to actually make this earth new. To save not just us, to make all things No, it's it's a tremendous message, and this is what the entirety of the Bible is about from beginning to end. I mean, you start in the Garden of Eden with the fall and the promised Messiah, and even as Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden early on, we hear uh, a forerunner of the gospel that Eve, her seed, will one day uh, crush the serpent's head while the serpent will bruise So already, God uh, giving that message that there is one who is coming whose business is rescue. There's one who's coming whose business is rescue. And those are the seeds that the sower is to sow. Uh, That is exactly what ought to be disseminated uh, amongst uh, the people. And we see here that when the seeds of the gospel are sown, how are they sown? Recklessly. Recklessly. Uh, for those of you know that anything about farming, I, I know very little. Uh, but I know you sow seeds where the soil is fertile, where it's been fertilized and it's been plowed up, and you keep it between uh, the head the hedgerows. You don't just go willy-nilly flinging seed all over the place. Uh, why? Because it's wasteful. Uh, in the same way, God's grace is gratuitous, and so the gospel. Jesus says, ought to be sown indiscriminately all over the place. Why? Because our eyes can't see the hearts of those who we're sowing upon. Uh, We actually can't gauge uh, the soil. We're not uh, soil testers. And if you're anything like me, I've tried to do that before. Uh, I've known people in my life where I've thought, they're this close to becoming a Christian. And then I find out that the goth guy around the corner who had the black fingernails and said, Jesus is a loser, now he's a Christian, right? And he's the guy that was like, surely, if there's anyone that has a hard heart, it's this guy. And the guy that I thought was this close never became a Christian. And so we're indiscriminate in the sowing of the seeds of the gospel. We're to tell the gospel to everyone, uh, which is very intimidating. Uh, What I'm finding in the world today is that, yes, we say that the gospel is for everyone, but do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the gospel is for everyone? Uh, Quite frankly, there are people who I'd rather share the gospel with than others because they make me feel uncomfortable. They take me out of my comfort zone. Uh, But that's really no excuse. Uh, The girls and I, uh, I hesitate to call it a family vacation because the kids were there, so it's a family trip. And uh, as we were making our way uh, through the southeastern United States, uh, we uh, had dinner with some friends uh, in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which I'd read a little bit uh, about. And that is the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in the United States. And while the girls and I were there, they spied a Dairy Queen. They've got these DQ antennas. They just know where they are. Uh, And uh, while uh, we were there, uh, we went in, uh, and the number of people there who were visibly addicted to to drugs. Uh, I, I know this from my time working with heroin addicts in England, and it was obvious. And while it was there, I realized, How am I supposed to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to this group of people? I know how to articulate the gospel, but am I able to articulate it in such a way that they can understand it? You know, the group that is often referred to as the nuns in the United States of America, uh, not the ones that look like penguins uh, and and do good deeds, uh, but uh, those who say, I don't believe in anything. And most of those folks are not necessarily antagonistic toward Christianity. Uh, They simply just don't see what role the Christian faith uh, plays in their own lives. And when I think of the nuns, I always think of them as twenty somethings who live in San Francisco, but do you know a significant number of those individuals who they are demographically blue collar working class Americans, people who live in martinsburg, West Virginia, in fact the entire state of west virginia now i'm trying i'm being very 'm not trying to objectify uh, anyone, uh, but my question is uh, do we have a gospel message that cuts across every person in class? On the other extreme of that, uh, you've got people who, as a result of our election, uh, are in a bad way. Uh, They still really haven't quite recovered from it. And in fact, when we were in Washington, D.C., there was a bumper sticker that I saw that said, um, when fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the American flag and carrying a cross. Now, I hear what they were saying, but I think the underlying issue is that they saw Christianity as a problem in the United States, in something to be shunned altogether, that Christianity was bad for people, and because of Christianity, we could possibly see the rise of fascism in the United States. Are we able to articulate the gospel to people who are even antagonistic To the gospel. And this is one of the things that was remarkable about Paul's ministry. You know, uh, Paul had a wheelhouse. I mean, there were particular groups of people that the Apostle Paul was really good at preaching to. Uh, But that didn't keep him from preaching to everyone. If he was given the opportunity, he was going to preach. And so here's Paul uh, preaching to the lowliest of the low, uh, but also preaching to governors of Roman provinces preaching even to Caesar himself. And yes, there were times that were more effective than others, but Paul understood the principle of the parable of the sower, that that's not his job. His job is to sow the seeds indiscriminately. Or if you want to put it another way, his job was to pour out the gospel of Jesus Christ like water and pray that the Holy Spirit turned it into wine. That the converting work was not... Paul's winsome manner. In fact, Paul admitted it, and we have records that show that Paul was not a great preacher. He was not. He was not a person of stature. Uh, He was nothing compared to the, the preacher Apollos, and yet God used Paul in his weakness because all Paul did was to be faithful to the preaching of the Gospel, and he poured out the Gospel And prayed that the Holy Spirit would do the rest because he knew that only the Holy Spirit of God could bring people to a place of having their eyes open to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we see that throughout history, not just the Apostle Paul, but I think of John Knox. When John Knox went to, uh, and John Knox was a surly fellow, uh, to say the least, uh, but when he was summoned to Mary, Queen of Scots, he took his Bible along with him and he presented the gospel to the Queen of Scotland. He didn't get far, but he did it nonetheless. Or you think of John Wesley. John Wesley, Oxford-educated, pretty sophisticated guy, uh, was pretty much kicked out of the Church of England, couldn't find a pulpit. And so he went to the open-air preaching. And there are stories of of Wesley preaching to the coal miners coming out of the mines at the end of the day, dog-tired, the last thing they want to hear is some preacher, and records of thousands and thousands of miners standing around Wesley whose faces are coal black with the exception of white streaks from the tears flowing down because here was this Oxford-educated guy who was simply pouring out the gospel. Could Wesley relate to the coal miners? Maybe to an extent, but not really. He simply sowed the seeds of the gospel and let the Holy Spirit of God do his work. Now these conditions of responding to Uh, And they're not really conditions. Uh, These are simply, I believe, what Jesus is saying. These are typical responses to the gospel. One response is that that someone might hear the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, and the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Uh, How many times have we seen that? Where the gospel is preached, even in an articulate manner. I told a story this morning of uh, William Wilberforce, who uh, grew up, was best friends with William Pitt the Younger, youngest man to ever uh, become the Prime Minister of England. And Wilberforce was a believer in the Lord Jesus, wasn't sure that Pitt was, and so he cared about his friends so much that he would often inquire. And what he really wanted was for Pitt to come and hear a preacher in London named Richard Cecil. Richard Cecil was like the end-all be-all preacher in London in the latter part of the 18th century. And finally, Pitt had gotten tired of being badgered, and so he said, fine, I'll go with you. And he and Wilberforce went off, and Wilberforce said later on that Cecil was at the top of his game. He was everything that he hoped to be so that Pitt could hear it. I mean, he really went for it. He was articulate, he was winsome, he was clear, and Wilberforce said that even he was caught up in the whole thing, and he couldn't wait to get to the end of the service so he could ask Pitt what he thought. And as they were walking away, Wilberforce said to Pitt, what would you think? And Pitt responded, I didn't understand a word that man said. Why? Because his eyes were veiled to the gospel. Cecil may have, might as well have been preaching to a dead man. In fact, those are the two conditions that the Bible sets up for human beings. We're either dead in our sins and trespasses or we've been made alive in Christ. Those are the two conditions. There's not gradations, so it's not like when we go to Martinsburg, West Virginia, that we say, these people are more dead than I am. And it's not that when we go uh, before Mary, Queen of Scots, we say, she might be a little bit more alive than most. No, no, no. We're either dead or we're alive. There's no in-between. And so here we have people whose eyes are veiled. In fact, they're dead. And they've not been given ears to hear because that's exactly what Jesus says in that interim. This is why I preach in parables. He quotes Isaiah, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And so lost in their sins and trespasses their own sin has blinded them to hearing and seeing the gospel message. And that's a response that we often see. As for that which was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I hate this one. Uh, this is the one that makes me anxious because as Jesus sang, "Where those who become Christians, but you can actually lose your salvation. No. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, he's saying that the gospel hasn't even taken root in this person's heart and their reasons for conversion are actually not rooted in gospel reasons. I had uh, a friend uh, growing up, I don't know if y'all went through this phase, but uh, there was an Assemblies of God church in our town that was very popular and they put on this play once a year called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And what they did is they showed vignettes of people who would die and those who put their trust in Jesus went off with the angels into heaven, and those who did not put their trust in Jesus were carried away by demons into hell. Needless to say, when you got to the end of it, and they said, Who wants Jesus? Stampede. Why? Not because they were afraid of sinning, but because they were afraid of burning. They weren't interested in having Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as the King of their lives, what they were interested in was getting out of jail free, or more literally, getting out of hell free. Uh, They weren't interested at all. They weren't really called to any sort of faith. Uh, They were simply uh, hedging their bets. And in our day and age, it might be less that, depending on where you grew up. But in Birmingham, Alabama, a lot of it is that for many, Christianity is a cultural consideration. Uh, It's not uh, a conviction in in one's heart, uh, but it's simply uh, part of the fabric of of who we are here in Birmingham. And so you can go to any cocktail party, and in one breath you'll ask, well, what do you do for a living? And in the next you ask, where do you go to church? It's just part of our common language. Uh, But even around those people that are like us, I have a hard enough time witnessing to Martinsburg, West Virginia... I have a hard enough time witnessing to Mary, Queen of Scots. But truth be told, do I have the courage to witness to people who are like me? Do I have a trust in the Holy Spirit of God that he actually is going to draw people to faith? And certainly there are those who hear the gospel and they get real charged up. But after a while, uh, they fade away because the gospel never became a reality in their own hearts. And as for the one that was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, This is the one where, you know, you're struggling. I mean, Spurgeon was right. The last part of the Christian to be converted is their checkbook. Uh, There's a wonderful comic of this guy being baptized in in a pond, and as he's going under the water, he's holding his wallet above the water as he goes down. Uh, But it's more the deceitfulness, more than just the deceitfulness of riches. uh, It's the world. Uh, It's the it's the pressures uh, of the world to to not believe, uh, but also in our own lives to live our lives in such a way as if God doesn't exist. Uh, to live our lives in such a way that Jesus is what we do on Sunday, uh, but not uh, the rest uh, of the week. And uh, we'd really rather not talk about Jesus because that's an entirely personal matter, uh, but we're not consumed, and we're not like William Wilberforce, who when Cecil was preaching was completely ravished with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Wilberforce, interested in the life of Pitt, who was one of those who really was interested in Christianity, but the cares of the world and the deceitful of riches choked the word and proved unfruitful. And then finally, what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. What determines good soil? This is what determines good soil. Nobody is born with good soil in their heart. It's not natural. It has to be plowed up. And so all of our hearts, by reason of our nature, are either like the path, they're either rocky, uh, they're either filled with thorns, or more than likely than not, all of the above, And so what is required is for the Holy Spirit of God to plow up our hard and sinful hearts. And that's God's work. And that's God's work. And we never know when God is going to do that work in the life of the individual. One of the hardest things for me is to wonder, when is it time to knock the dust off my sandals and say this is pearls before swine? And when to continue to sow the seeds of the gospel? And I think that the answer, and we find it here in the parable, is to continue to sow and sow and sow and sow. Because we never know, not only when their hearts are going to be plowed up, but the work of the Holy Spirit doing the watering. Think of your own life. For those of you who know the Lord Jesus, think of when you came to know him. No, I don't have one of those testimonies where, you know, I joined a motorcycle gang and I used to punch puppies in the faces and, and now Jesus has gotten a hold of me. I mean, my testimony is very simple that I had family members who told me about Jesus Christ and his great love and vacation Bible school had a profound impact on me in my life. But that was because somebody was faithful in pouring out the gospel. And even then, even though you might say, well, Andrew, you came to faith as a young person. I was about 11 years old. Uh, You really didn't have enough time to get to sinning. But I actually look back on my life, and I'm overwhelmed by the fact that God really did save me. Uh, He he saved me from so much, not just what I might have been able to do in those 11 years, but but what might have been beyond that. And it was simply because people were faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we go about our own lives sowing the seeds of the gospel, uh, that we would not worry so much about whether or not they are going to take root because frankly, that's not our job. Uh, But that God would open our hearts in such a way that we would, like Jesus, when we see the crowds, that we would have compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd and that we would sow the seeds of the gospel indiscriminately, no matter they be Welsh coal miners, drug addicts in Martinsburg, West Virginia, angry political people in Washington, D.C., or people just like you and me because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. And it may be that even tonight, the Holy Spirit for the first time has plowed up your heart and the seeds of the gospel are starting to take root And your eyes for the first time are open to behold Jesus and all of his glory and all of his majesty and with open arms. And I plead with you to run without abandon into his arms of salvation. For you've come home. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life and into the kingdom of light. And give thanks to God for those faithful sowers who have gone out into the world to sow the gospel that the Holy Spirit has brought into fruition. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're enough. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need programs. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that those of us who know you would be given the courage to sow the seeds of the gospel far and wide. That we'd not get into the business of judging soil and hearts. But that we would simply pour out the word like water and pray that your Holy Spirit would turn it into wine. And Lord, for those that were sowing the seeds too, Lord, that you would plow up their hard hearts as you did ours. That the seeds of the gospel would take deep root and by the watering of your Holy Spirit, that they would grow into full fruition and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for those who've been burned by the church and a heart for the city of Birmingham. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.